0: From Kurtco Media. Yes, yeah, we do. And, and and as you perhaps remember from experience in Scotland, you know, we all sit around the table and we all eat together and we all, we're all exercising together. We're all in the water together, but there aren't those boundaries that exist because they, they can't be because we're living together and we're working and it's a, you know, we, we deal in trust and vulnerability and it's a very human-centered engagement. So we are sharing those experiences and we're in, we're in it as well. And, you know, it's the first time that I'm meeting those people or that I'm vomiting in the client's vomiting along beside me and drinking their tea or we're eating whatever one's eating or we're paddling on in the canoe or carrying what needs to be carried so yeah you do form very strong bonds with these shared stories so going forward it does create a particular engagement and I think it supports also the work that we do because you then see individuals and a part of them that's not ne- necessarily present in their every day and them with us too so we're vulnerable then it gives permission for them to be that's where the sort of magic happens. I have people talk to me about frictionless travel. I don't know if it's something that you have heard described. You know, you can move through airports and, and have nothing hold you up between leaving your home and arriving at your destination. For me, the whole point of travel, unless you're in doing business, is to have friction, is for things to occur, because that's when the magic happens and that's when you have these experiences.
1: Hey, everybody. That was Callum Morrison, founder of the Extraordinary Adventure Club. Way back in season one of Travel That Matters, I had the pleasure of speaking to Calum, who's a friend of mine, about all his life-changing and, and these transformational journeys that he creates throughout the world. Calm is from the Scottish Highlands, and a lot of the work that he does and a lot of the adventures that he takes his clients on are in the Scottish Highlands, in remote areas. He does incredible things that not just, you know, are, are great fun adventures, but they actually, like, they truly make you a better person. Like, it is incredible stuff. Anyways, check out that episode if you have not done so yet. Callum Morrison, way back, season one of Travel That Matters. If you like Scotland, if you love Scotland like we do, then I have something new that you should also check out. It's called Wild for Scotland. Wild for Scotland is an immersive travel podcast hosted by the award-winning travel blogger, Kathy Camleitner. It's a show for Scotland lovers around the world and, and it really allows you to connect with the country through fascinating stories, practical travel tips, and conversations with locals who are passionate about sharing Scotland with the world. Here's a quick episode preview about foraging wild Scottish foods.
2: Hello there, and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of inspiring stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures. I'll tell you immersive stories to whisk you away, share some of my top tips for your own Scotland trip, and introduce you to inspiring locals and their stories. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. It's hard to believe, but today we've reached the end of this season about the people of Scotland. Over the past few months, we've visited Glasgow and Edinburgh, Oban, Fort William, Persher and Galloway, and spoke to people who call these places their home. We've heard about histories that are often overlooked and the tours and experiences that are trying to rectify this. We've learned about Scottish wildlife and the geology of the highlands Went out there swimming in a freezing cold loch and kayaked along the coast in search of delicious wild foods. And that last topic is what we'll explore in today's conversation with my guest, Mark Williams. You've already heard a bit about Mark in last week's story, he was one of the people who led the kayaking and foraging trip I did a few weeks ago in Galloway. If you haven't listened to the story in tune yet, do go back and listen for a taste of that experience. A few weeks after our trip, I connected with Mark on Zoom and asked him to tell us more about his story. We'll hear about what goes into being a full-time forager, get some tips for people who'd like to start gathering wild foods, and gain an insight into what makes foraging such a fun and rewarding experience. Let's hear it from Mark and listen to his story. Why don't you start by introducing yourself telling us your preferred pronouns and a little bit about what you do and who you are.
3: I'm Mark Williams. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. And uh, yeah, I uh, I teach about foraging and wild food. Um, I suppose it's my hobby and my job, which is kind of lucky. And also you have to be careful that you don't lose your hobby once your hobby becomes your job. But that's going okay. I've been... Uh, teaching about foraging for about 30 years so i suppose i'm the the old guard of uh, of what is now a kind of uh, i hesitate to call it a sector but it's a surging area of uh, excitement and uh, interest uh, you know partly fueled by lockdown and covid when people had a little bit of time to slow down and look at what's around them and partly uh, because foraging fits really well surprisingly well with social media I call it cyber foraging, and uh, you know the, the the here and now, like finding something and sharing it—a place and a moment—actually connects really powerfully on on social media. So foraging and well, cyber foraging, as I've coined it, is uh, is quite a thing now on on social media, and it translates really well. So uh, yeah, um, that's what I do. I teach uh, mostly uh, on guided walks about wild plants, fungi, and seaweeds. And I consult with businesses, um, drinks businesses or chefs or schools or TV production companies, that kind of thing about wild food and foraging. And uh, also during lockdown, I started a mentoring service, like a one-to-one mentoring service for people just looking to connect. Uh, did that online and that was really, really wonderful, just helping people to just get some one-to-one tuition. And yeah, it was really amazing. I just started it on a pay-as-you-can-afford basis during lockdown and... Mostly, I was doing it for free, but it was—it uh, was really nice. I had a really good, good vibe, and lots of people. Kind of amazing to see how fast people came on with their with their foraging skills. So, yeah, lots of different strands to what I do, but basically, it's—I'm uh, a cheerleader for wild food and uh, reconnection with nature through through foraging, I suppose.
2: And is that something you've always wanted to do or, you know, did you always know this could be your job, you know, to be a full-time forager or Gosh, was foraging no. something you've discovered later?
3: No, not at all. Um, it, that is not something you get told about in careers advice service at school, is it? You know, it's like, uh, you know, um, you're going to go to university and because uh, you because you can and uh, and what are you going to do at university? And it's like, oh, right, okay. So, so there was no choice in that, was there really? I, not for me anyway. And uh, yeah, I was lucky enough to fall off that uh, that uh, rather dubious path, and uh, did lots of really interesting jobs. But no, at no point did I think uh, this is going to be my my actual full time job. I remember somebody saying to me once: um, I worked in this restaurant, and uh, one of the owners was quite fond of me when I was when I was 21. He says, "Mark, why why don't I take you?" Uh, you can like you and I can travel around the world, and I'll take you to mushroom season at any place in the world, and you can just like be a full time mushroom forager, you know. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, how wonderful, and how crazy, and how absurd. I think he was trying to seduce me, actually, but uh, anyway, I resisted. And uh, but now I kind of do that, and uh, it's like yeah, it's like all the best jobs—you kind of evolve into it, and it evolves into you. And uh, I only really went full time doing it about ten or twelve years ago now, but I've done guided walks in my spare time for thirty. 35 years. So I found an old black and white photo somebody sent me from, uh, from the Aran Banner. I grew up on the Isle of Aran and uh, that's where I started, did my first foraging walks. And somebody sent me this black and white picture of me uh, looking kind of scarily young. I was like, oh, right, I guess, yeah, I used to look quite different. And um, <laughs> teaching, teaching. And, and, uh, and the thing that happened on that walk, uh, I did it for free for the National Trust. And 100 people turned up on the walk and that was my first ever guided walk. So it was like proper baptism of fire sort of thing and uh, make or break kind of time. And I guess I'm lucky that I have a big booming voice and, um, and, you know, more confidence than I should have uh, in general, or I did back then. And I got away with it. And uh, yeah, and ever since I've just enjoyed, yeah, teaching and connecting. And I quite like the theatre of a guided walk on foraging, where you kind of unveil one thing after another and kind of t- see people's perspectives on what's around them changing as they, as they kind of follow along on the walk and absorb new things and different people connecting with different elements that they're, that they're meeting. Yeah. It's it's magical.
2: And do you have any favorite plants to forage? Because there's obviously so much and, you know, like you say, there's so much knowledge behind all of this because there are so many different kinds of plants and, and different yeah. kinds of things and foods you can find. Do you have anything that particularly interests you? <laughs>
3: Um, I always say generally my favorite thing to forage is whatever I'm foraging at the time, <laughs> because it's so in the moment and it's so kind of connected with it. It's, and you have to know different things that you forage have, like they stir you in different ways, you know, like there's something exciting about hunting for a uh, or porcini in the, in the kind of, in the early autumn. And that's a kind of like big game hunting, almost kind of vibe. That's really exciting. and You don't know what to expect, but then there's like, visiting my favorite slow slow bush, uh, you know, just down the road, you know, 10, 10 minutes walk from my door and going, oh yeah, hello old friend, how are you? You know, so like, I, it is literally like totally different emotions and different feelings. And I mean, I gather probably 500 different types of wild harvests over the course of a year. And I would say every single one of them is my favorite at the time I'm doing it. <laughs> because if you were to say what was my favorite one to eat, it would be quite different from my favorite one to harvest, you know, my favourite mm-hmm. one to harvest is about the place and the moment and where it takes me and the time of year, you know. Whereas, like in terms of eating, some things are definitely, uh, definitely up there tastier. So you'll have to be more specific with your <laughs> question. But if you want me to pick out like uh, two, three things, what, what about one seaweed and one plant and one um. And one mushroom that's about as good as get. let's go here. for that then okay. yes one of each uh, okay well well the plant actually that's really hard as well <laughs>
2: <But> you've <laughs> said those rules
3: <laughs> uh, yeah no but it changed the rules already <laughs> um no in terms of plants it would have to be common hogweed uh heraclean because it's like amazing uh vegetable it's incredible wild spice it has all sorts of complicated things around it that people have to tune into and I, I kind of love that about it. It's like, you know, foraging is not like going to the shops. You need to connect and you need to learn and you need to invest some time. So I kind of admire it because it has some challenges. It has some kind of dodgy relations, but also because it's incredibly delicious. And also it, it teaches us that most important thing about foraging that it's like this is a hyperabundant plant. that's around us all the time and, and is ignored by 99.9% of the population. So it teaches us that you know foraging is not about seeking or searching it's about recognition and uh, and and getting to know things and and connection uh, so so that would be common hogweed for that reason gosh i feel really bad for sea kale now <laughs>
2: <laughs> sea kale is delicious but oh, so is common hogweed so you yeah. know
3: <laughs> Yeah yeah you met them both on our on our trip um, well yeah sea kale has yeah it's definitely better looking
2: <laughs> <laughs> It's a gorgeous plant it is yeah, yeah. 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 what about seaweeds
3: uh, oh, seaweed! Oh gosh, that's that's really difficult as well.
2: You know which but, one is my favourite?
3: Dulce, Yeah, you're a Dulce junkie. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dulce definitely wins the flavour stakes. There's no doubt about that. But I think I go with sea lettuce mm-hmm. uh, because it's so beautifully iridescently green, and it reminds me of that connection of 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 you know all our all our terrestrial plants. They really started off as algae, uh, as seaweeds essentially. Uh, which came ashore so the greenness and there is a vibrancy to the greenness of sea lettuce that is just like it's it's almost better than beach leaves in the early spring you know it's (laughs) like it's Mm. it's mega and it tastes amazing and it's incredible in pickles and when you dry it and it just gives me a little kind of even though it's really common and it's everywhere like when i'm picking it i'm just like oh yeah yeah hello (laughs) you know, it's like hello old friend good to see you again you know so yeah um yeah definitely uh uh, sea lettuce well again lots of contenders <laughs>
2: <laughs> and mushrooms that's the, the the glorious third group of cl- things you oh, can forage
3: uh, mushrooms are my first foraging love so it's really that's even harder it's like picking a favorite child or something but <laughs> I have because I've written about this on my website and um and it has to be hen of the woods which is this giant sprawling thing it can get you know it takes two people to lift one up it's this most beautiful series of fan-like corals all overlapping and interweaving these beautiful kind of brown and gray and silver markings it grows a really massive and it's uh, mildly parasitic on old oak trees and what i love about it is it's not super common around me so like i know sometimes like one or two a year i mean one's enough like for your entire year's supply if you, if mm. you need to uh, so it's kind of like hard enough to find that it's exciting it feels like a hunt you know like a vegetarian stalking kind of thing um and and delicious and it's also medicinal and uh just a magical beautiful thing to find so so many good things about it yeah
2: that's a great choice that's a great yeah. choice so now we've got your three favorites and we won't tell any of the others that they didn't make the list
3: <laughs> i can actually hear some spignal in the kitchen getting sulky <laughs> What about me, like pickled chanterelles in my fridge going, oh, well then. (laughs) We'll go off.
2: (laughs) Um, I really like what you said about, you know, how foraging gets you in touch and in connection, I guess, with the place that you go and and seek for these things and and hunt Mm. for these things in a way. And that sense of place you get from being there and having these great success moments of finding something you can eat and that tastes Mm. delicious. And we were talking earlier a little bit about, you know, your past trips to the Isle of Ila, And you said you have a map, a mental map in your head about all the places that you've went to to forage and the foods you have found. How does that traveling aspect come into your work? You know, what does that mean to you when you travel and forage at the same time? Does that change how you experience places or, or how, you, how you feel about certain places?
3: yeah absolutely i I suppose there are kind of two types of foraging one and one is the sort of familiarity foraging that i alluded to earlier on where you're kind of going and meeting something that's normally the case with lots of plants or perennial plants or you know they're kind of in the same place or like trees so that's more about like going to your favorite place like my local wild garlic spot you know i go there year after year carefully look after it so that's that kind of like long-term intimate friendship kind of thing with a relationship with a plant. And then the other type of foraging is the, is the sort of seeking, searching kind, where there's something you're looking for. And that's why I suppose uh, foraging for fungi is a little bit more uh, kind of exciting, because even if you're going to a spot that you know where they are, if you could be one day out and they're not there, or you have to kind of search around the trees a little bit more, you know, so it's that, that kind of searching thing. And, and when I visit a new location, if I go on holiday somewhere, it is about like connecting with that place through its, um, through its plants and its fungi. And I think that is like, you know, I suppose as humans, we, we connect visually don't we with landscape and socially with people and the stories of places and so on. But uh, actually I've taken out people on private bookings and I I just think it's such a wonderful way to get to know a local area. I took out an American couple and uh, they said, Oh, whenever we go anywhere, the first thing we want to do is like learn about its plants. Cause that's what that place is. They're the things that model that place. That's why it looks the way it is. That's why people eat the the things around there. You know, it's, it's, you know, so that, that deep intimacy with, with plants is always my kind of entry point into a landscape. I mean, obviously you go, wow, look at the mountains kind of thing, but then you kind of dive in and look at like, you know, what, what's growing there. So yeah, we're going up the West coast next week. And, uh, I think we are up on uh, Loch Torridon, going up to Ben A, um, yeah. and, uh, it was great. We kind of walked up the mountain, not all the way, I think. It was a bit of a dodgy day, but it came out nice on the way down. And was swimming in that beautiful gorge. I'm guessing you'd probably been up that that trail. Anyway, there's a little plant. It's not very common in Scotland called rose root, you know, and, and that was just growing in this amazing kind of canyon. I love swimming in wild, in, in mountain rivers. That's my kind of other favorite thing, <laughs> apart from foraging. And, um, yeah, so I, I got to combine the two. You have to kind of swim across this pool, climb up this waterfall, and there is this rose root in this place and that is my like dream holiday thing it's like that deep connection and and i suppose when in looking for plants and, and finding them you don't always find what you think you might find so it leads you on to other things as well so it's like uh it unlocks places mm-hmm. and uh yeah so the first thing i i do and, and i think it's a really nice way to connect with the place is to learn about its flora and i i also think you know animals are amazing uh but we kind of over obsessed with them with this kind of deer and eagles in scotland isn't it and you know the kind of big cats and, and and other bits of the world if you look at documentary programs you get 50 programs about great big animals to every one about plants you know what i mean mm. uh, so I, I just want to redress that balance a little bit it's one of my little bugbears. i love a love a bit of david attenborough don't get me wrong but uh you know why don't we have more of those like you know much cheaper to make detailed programs about plants and fungi and hopefully that's coming now as well
2: And in many ways also very useful to people because I think there's one thing to learn about plants, but having gone out on a foraging walk with you, you know, you see a plant and you immediately think about all the things you can make from it and how it can be used and how it can be sustained and how it can be foraged sustainably as well and and making sure that it's still there for years to come. And I think, yeah, I like what... They're kind of the unsung heroes, aren't they? They're everywhere plants. We need them and we we need them to create oxygen. We need them to eat. But somehow they get drowned out in you know we, we don't look down enough i guess yeah. we, we only look into the yeah. distance so yeah i
3: think there's a slight danger that that, that nature becomes other like something mm. that we look at mm.
1: uh,
3: and admire and protect because you know we have messed up our planet so oh, don't touch that you know but it's like it, it's touching and that the intimacy that foraging brings that actually really safeguards plants mm. you know like that you know people you know I, I have i have friends who who like were in tier, floods of tears just when a bit of plantation forestry got felled because they picked amazing mushrooms under that plantation forestry. Mm. You know that that deep connection that 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 plant knowledge of fungal knowledge makes with the place, and you know foragers aren't obsessed with whether it's things that are native or non-native or anything like that. It's about connecting with with what what is actually there, and uh, yeah, that kind of deep intimacy with a with a, with a place is 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 kind of the magic, yeah.
2: Absolutely. I think it gives you a sense of, maybe ownership is the wrong word, but a a much deeper relationship with with the land and the resources that are there. Like you say, rather than just saying, oh, someone else protect this and no one touch it, and someone else will take care of this, Mm -hmm. is actually you engaging with that landscape directly. And so in in many ways, you know, I see it in, in the woodland behind our house. There's so much litter everywhere. And I think it's because people don't have that relationship with with that environment and that landscape. And it's yeah. such a shame yeah. because I think it just needs, you know, walking through and seeing all the bluebells, picking some of the wild garlic, knowing what the weeds are that are growing everywhere. And yeah. it just makes it a lot more personal and gives you a direct connection with the place.
3: And I think it starts as well with being comfortable in, in those habitats. So, you mm. know, there's amazing stuff going on now with forest school. Uh, but you know, why why isn't this stuff in the actual national curriculum, you know? You know, it's like, like let's get kids, let's teach kids how to shit in the woods, you know. <laughs> and, you know, that should be top of the curriculum as far as I'm concerned. And uh, you know, but also that you know, like being comfortable outside, being comfortable in the in the woods, being understanding some of the plants, you know, not you're not gonna know everything, but you know, you know, respecting the, the that and 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 that just gives you a sense of perspective of your place in the world, I guess. So uh yeah let's get into schools
2: absolutely. If someone is to come and visit Scotland or someone from Scotland goes anywhere else really the the question is very broad. What are some good tips or best practice tips for people who are new to an area and want to forage and want to explore some of the plants that are around? What are some good ways they can get started?
3: yeah um I, I realize that you you kind of uh, have a, a focus on people who are visiting uh, mm. Scotland, but i mean I would I would say wherever you are, like foraging starts at home. And it's about recognising what is immediately around you. Mm. And you'll actually find that if you go out and walk down any green space near you, even if you live in the middle of a city, even if you've got a slightly, um, you know, belittled wood behind your house, you know, there's still amazing plants doing amazing things in those locations. And you can go out and connect with what's immediately around you. And that, I think that that opens up lots of doors because plants are normally in family groups. You know, you'll start to recognise members of the carrot family or, you know, different types of uh, of members of the Daisy family or so, things like that, you know? So, you know, like what, one bit of knowledge opens up doors to other bits of knowledge as well. So start at home. And then if you go to a new area, I mean, that is really exciting. Um, you know, maybe connect with a local person and uh, or, you know, somebody with a bit of local knowledge and ask them, well, what, what do you pick around here? And of course, in the UK up until about, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, most people would have just talked about um, Brambles or slows for slow gin, maybe a few people about wild garlic, but really the big surge of knowledge of, 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 of rediscovering that knowledge in the UK has come in the last sort of 10, 15 years, I suppose. Um, but yeah, ask local people what, what they're doing and and also try and if you want to harvest stuff, I mean it's not always very practical if you're on holiday, um, because you might not be catering for yourself, et cetera. Um, but uh, you know, try and try and get a feel for what there's lots of <laughs> yeah, yeah. because there is a danger of that kind of slight colonial aspect of you turn up somewhere and say, Oh, there's loads of this. And you know, you might be there for a few days. You don't really know anything about that. You know, you need to observe things for quite a long time before you actually know what is an appropriate way to behave around them. It's, it's like building a relationship with, 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 with anyone or anything. It's, it's you have to get to know it. And if you just turn up and like you're right in its face, then, uh, then you might make mistakes or, or, or do things um, kind of carelessly. So uh yeah, get to know an area gently and uh and, and take an interest, ask local people, come out with a on a guided forage, maybe. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's definitely a good good way to do it. And you know, that's something I was so excited about that, that the foraging trip and the kayaking trip we did a few weeks ago. And if listeners haven't listened to last week's story yet, definitely go back and listen to that for an insight or an experience of what it's like to be on a foraging and kayaking trip with Mark. Obviously that trip required an incredible amount of preparation from your side. You know, you you foraged in advance to have enough food for what, 12, 13 people we were. You know the area really well. You you I kind of guess you had an idea of what plants you will you will show us and what parts of your knowledge you'll need to access over the weekend. And yet the walks felt really spontaneous and it was always a kind of like, oh, let's see what we can find here. And and you could tell or I could tell you were discovering things alongside us. You just knew what they were. Yeah, Yeah. And so I'm wondering how much does preparation matter to the work that you do, especially with the foraging walks, or is it very often that it is a surprise and you just have all this knowledge that you can access?
3: Yeah, I think when I, when I first started doing regular kind of guided foraging walks, I would get quite anxious if somebody said, "Oh, could you come here and do a foraging walk?" and I didn't know that area. And that's totally, you know, I don't, I don't beat myself up about that. I think that's totally right because you know, you're like, "Oh well, anything could be there," and what's my knowledge? And but it's about, I suppose, you grow into that confidence in your own knowledge that there may be surprises out there, but that's okay. You know, like I, I love it when we're on a walk and I don't, I find something and I don't know what it is because that. You know, like that. I hate being seen as some sort of guru. I just have a bit of knowledge, a bit more knowledge than most people about a very niche subject. You know, and so so when when your teacher finds something and they're like, "Oh, wow, this is exciting!" I don't know what this is. I think that's quite liberating for the people who are there to learn as well. It's like, okay, right, nobody knows all of this. You know, this is like learning is a journey, isn't it? It's a journey of discovery, and there's always more to learn. So I, I now love, um, and I suppose that comes with, you know, having done guided walks for 30 years or so around foraging. I just love going to new areas. And I know I can go anywhere with any green space. Talking about going and doing some work with a drinks brand over in Luxembourg at the moment. And mm. the guy keeps sending me photos of the local area saying, oh, maybe we could go here. And we're supposed to be taking out some bartenders. I'm like, yeah, that'll be okay. I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, sometimes I'll have a little look on Google Maps and make sure it's, you know, not a monoculture or whatever. And... And he sends some more and he's like, oh, what do you think we'll find here? I was like, well, I don't know, but it'll be interesting, you know? So, <laughs> um, and that, so I, I guess that's about relaxing, me relaxing into, into my kind of comfort zone and knowing what I know. And I now love going to new areas. And I, I, do, I do scheduled walks where I take people out. And when I do them in, in my local area around uh, Galloway in southwest Scotland, I know what we're going to find. I, I have routes that I've used before. And I sometimes tweak them and change them. But to be honest, the, the routes that I, I use for most of my walks, I've kind of developed them and it's there's a certain theater to them. I'm like, I, this walk is great and I'd only be changing it for my sake, not for the sake of the clients who come along, because I know on this walk, we'll meet all those things they want to know, um, lots of those things that they should know, and, and 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 a ton of those cool things that that we might talk about or we might not, you know, those, those kind of different layers of, of, of what people come along on, a, on any kind of guided walk uh, are, are interested in. So um, I, I love the th- sort of theatre of a walk. It's like, yeah, and you always have a few poisonous things as well, because they're <laughs> the ones that people really want to know about. And you know? um, so that's the bulk of my work is like guided walks like that. And, and often in places that I'm familiar with to, to a greater or lesser degree. But what's joyful about the paddling trip, uh, the one I did with you was in my local kind of region, but um, it's more spontaneous because mm. we're, we're also subject to the tides and the winds and uh, the, uh how fit people are feeling when we want to stop for lunch uh we had a few near misses there as well <laughs> in the tides and um and uh, yeah so 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 that means it's like well let's go and have a quick look at what's here you know and, and actually that works really well for 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 the people learning because it's like if you do a three-hour guided walk with me we'll be 30 maybe 40 different plants that, that mm. is actually way too much You know imagine speed dating and meeting 30 (laughs) or 40 people in in three hours you know you wouldn't remember half of them would you so and 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 it's just like that with plants you just you know you're getting introductions and it's a bit overwhelming whereas on the paddling trip it's spread out over three days it's like you know here's a little chance to go and have a look at seaweeds and uh you know in different contexts and uh and it it just changes it and makes it slightly those different elements are a little bit broken up and slightly more memorable i suppose i'm guessing um i need to give you a test and see what what actually sunk in
2: (laughs) oh please don't please don't well there's a few things that sunk in and i think one of the things i really like is that because we're on that trip there are i guess because if you do a walk you know if i joined one of your foraging walks you would be either in the woodland or on the coast or in a meadow whereas i felt that we did a lot of different things so we went and saw the hedgerow plants we went and saw the seaweeds we looked at what grows on the edges of the of the sandy beaches or the stone beaches you know it was it was really interesting to think about groups of plants that live in one certain habitat yeah and the duration of the trip gave us that opportunity to explore a few different habitats like that and and the wetlands as well for example with the reeds so that was, all, that was all really cool. And we're actually gonna listen to a clip now from one of the follow-up foraging walks on the Galloway Coast that I did with Mark.
3: But, uh, and then there's another plantain here. These guys here, see them all in the cracks? That's yeah. all That's oh, on yeah. plantain. Yeah. So they, they have a similar flavor to the um, sea plantain, also coastal but you know, very pretty, mm. really juicy and tender. So yeah, really lovely little um, microclimate. Uh, but what's, what I've really brought you up here to show you is just over here, mm-hmm. last bit of clambering. Yeah, so this is, um, this is Scott's Lovage. Oh, wow. This is a oh, member of the, uh, of the carrot family, or the APAC. Um But this is a particular little delicacy of scotland i suppose um it's uh Logistum scoticum. i think is, is the latin name for it so it is particularly uh Scot- you wouldn't get this in the south of england and galloway is really interesting because we are in terms of its uh, distribution in the uk we're on the cusp of its southern uh, zone here okay. doesn't you don't really find it further south and um, what you start finding further south that some of you might met is rock samphire which loves these kind of cliffs and mm. craggy bits and stuff like that and uh, this, this kind of takes over as you get this far north. And in here, here we have a little bit of rock samphire in places and a little bit of this, a bit of both. But it's like intense lovage, celery mm-hmm. and sort of fenugreek. This contains a compound called Sotolon, which is also present in fenugreek. So it has this like really intense uh, aromatic quality. Um, there's enough here to all have a, have a taste. You don't need very much. Uh, I'll hand some out rather than you all uh, mm-hmm. fumbling around. This is going to have like unbeliferous uh, flower stems. Right. Like like the rest of the carrot family, you can see last yeah. year's just hanging on in there. We don't all need that That's much, it's you. enough to just have a taste. It's slightly bitter as well, but really lovely, just sort of chopped uh, lightly and just added as a kind of piquant seasoning.
2: Do you eat the leaves or the stems?
3: Mm, um, both, yeah, yeah. just sh- shred up the leaves and, and, and scatter them on, on dishes and the stems. Yeah. I, I always like the stems because they've got a bit more juice and a bit more crunch. But. Mm. It's quite full on, it's like, um, yeah. you know, it's um, not not a gentle flavour. <laughs> if you get the seeds later on, uh, the seeds definitely have this uh, really kind of intense, almost fenugreek kind of flavour. Mm. But uh, I particularly mm. love this little one here because I'd never found it in this little area of the coast. and Yeah, I just sort of like, somebody said, oh yeah, there's a really interesting plant up in the rocks Ooh. there. And it, here it is in its own little,
2: yeah. you
3: know, it's got its own little <laughs> zone going on, isn't yeah, yeah, it? Isn't yeah. it beautiful? Mm. It's, it's coastal only. Oh, yeah, only coastal, yeah. Um, you'll get this uh, on the east coast as well. I found this in the areas around East Lothian, like Tinningham and you know, kind of rocky outcrops. But sometimes also growing out in kind of, a, in the sort of sandier areas at the, above the shoreline. Really lovely, just yeah, Scots lovage. Mm. Okay, we'll just make our way back, back round and, and down now.
2: Now let's take a quick detour and hear more about our sponsors. We're back and I think it's time for a little topic change and I would love to talk to you a bit more about the region that we explored on our walk and and that is local to you, the Galloway coast. You said you grew up on the Isle of Arran, which isn't too far, but I guess I would love to know what brought you to Galloway and what you liked about it enough that you actually made it your home.
3: Yeah, um, yeah, I grew up on uh, Arran. Insofar as anyone grows up on a small Scottish island, it's kind of like Never Neverland. and uh, yeah, so. Uh, but an amazing place to grow up, and actually, my daughter I raised my daughter there as well. Uh, and then there's lots of wonderful things about living on an island, but also like that ferry, is is that, all the romance of the ferry for holiday makers. You get the. You get the other side of that when you live there and it mm. kind of starts to restrict your opportunities and so on. So I was I was really glad when when I did move away. Um yeah and uh, uh I kind of came down to Galloway with a partner at the time. Uh we're no longer together but she, she was from farming stock down in Galloway. So yeah kind of thought, yeah, let's let's go and explore a new bit of Scotland. And I was a bit <laughs> it was quite funny when I first came down here I was slightly skated because of course Aaron just got these wonderful mountains, like not massive Munroes, but like they look like Munroes, don't mm-hmm. they? And they're really alpine kind of vibe and rocky outcrops. And I did lots of um, mountaineering and uh, and hill walking and uh, I was in the mountain rescue team over there. So I was always a bit scathing about the, the rounded hills of Galloway, you know, which are basically just a bit older and they've had those jaggedy tops worn off. Mm. And it's, you know, it's not quite got that high drama that you get uh, further up the Scotland's West Coast. Uh, so I was I was jokingly skating about it, only only jokingly, just to wind up my partner. Up, to be honest, <laughs> well, the Merrick <laughs> but, um,
2: is almost a Monroe. It's quite hot. Quite oh yeah, high. it's like
3: 700, 700 or something <laughs> like that. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, it is, it is. But they're always they're all quite rounded on top, yes. aren't they? Down here, I mean, it's lovely actually. Don't get me wrong. As I get older, I'm really glad of that. <laughs> you know, it's like my <laughs> my climbing days are a little bit behind me now. But uh, actually, um, I mean, I, I was only really joking, and it's just stunning down here. It's like yeah the combination the patchwork of hills but this like the big dramatic coast but salt marsh estuaries so you know lots of big tidal estuaries Mm. rocky coast cliffs loads of farmland but also and then we've got the massive galloway forest park which is actually mostly plantation forestry um in the, the bit that's generally referred to as a forest park but we also it doesn't get talked about as much as it should but we have some of the biggest area of uh, ancient oak woodland in Scotland, in, in Galloway, up, up the Cree Valley, and, uh, you know, lots of amazing pockets of of deciduous woodland and, and so on. So th- this kind of combination of things, all fairly close together, uh, means that where I am in, in Galloway, and I'm in Gates House of Fleet, just means I have, like, literally everything on my on well, my doorstep, I look out the window now and, you know, I can see Cairns more of Fleet, this big whale back of a mountain and where, the, you know, there's loads of deer up there. But then there's like lots of this mixed deciduous forest just across the Fleet Valley where I'm looking out. And that's where I can actually look at spots where I pick particular types of mushroom. You know? yeah, that's, <laughs> I'll be there in a month's time picking chanterelles, you know, and I could just about see the sea from where, where we look down the coast as well to where we were paddling. So, you know, it's literally all there. And with it, mm. you know, if I use a bike, I, you know, so I have a, like a six to 10 mile range on a bike, say, without break busting a gut, you know, like all those things are right there, you know? Yeah. And that means that the, the you know, we talk about landscape, but I talk more about foodscapes. Mm. Uh, so, all those different kind of niches and foodscapes are all there pretty close together. And there's like a pattern to my year as to how I interact with them. So, I kind of, start off in early spring, in May with the birch sap rising and kind of mix, mixed woodland with birch trees, getting the birch sap and the really early spring plants and the wild garlic. And then as we move it through spring into what I call like high spring, which we as we talk, we're kind of going between high spring and summer, all the wild garlic and all those really vibrant things start to die back, but then the, the coast comes alive, mm-hmm. okay? So then you get these big juicy succulent coastal plants like the sea kale and sea beet, that we met, but also then later in summer, as they start to get bitter, there's another wave that starts on the salt marsh that we saw the very beginnings of on our trip. So there's this kind of uh, I think the ge- ge- geographers word for it is transhumans. Uh, so it's like how people move through landscapes according to the seasons, mm. and according to the food resources. And I kind of do that in a mini way. Obviously, I'm based in one place. But Times gone by, our, our hunter-gatherer ancestors would have followed those things very clearly, you know, from that inland, uh, you know, to the, where the food resources were, and back into the woods for the berries and things and roots and stuff in the autumn. They might not have been so interested in the mushrooms, but I certainly am. So, so I, lo- I love that kind of. That's how my year pans out. And at the moment, we're in this slightly sad phase where all the wild garlic, which is everywhere, is starting to go yellow and stinky. Um, you know, all that easy kind of greenery um and uh, and then some of the big succulent coastal plants like sea beet these wild spinaches are starting to develop a bit of bitterness so within you know that's like oh bye bye see you next year you know (laughs) and then hello salt marsh you know marsh samphire and sea blight sea aster like these incredible succulent salty plants and then just as they're getting a little bit fiddlier to pick then the, the mushrooms kick off and i'm you know so that's the kind of patter of my year I suppose a pitta patter and then the winter is a lovely rest after all of that but <laughs> <laughs> well, there's plenty to do then too
2: yeah well that's when all the the pr- food preservation I guess or partially you'll have to do it on the fly as you go throughout the season but I guess in yeah. the winter then it's about turning yeah. the things that you've made into more other things and actually using it all up and yeah
3: definitely there's some kind of rapid preservation happens when I'm you know between the I was actually just sort of Slight, getting slightly sentimental about lockdown last year, notwithstanding all horrible things about COVID, but I had time to preserve so many of those things that there's lots of fiddly things in foraging. Sometimes, that oh, it'd be fun to do that. But when you're busy teaching and running a you know a, a normal kind of life that you'd never quite find the time to do. And, and all of those things I managed to do in lockdown, you know, like jars and jars of the little tiny um, capers off the off the wild garlic, the seeds mm. which are about now. Which normally is kind of slightly too fiddly for me, you know, and like, and then making acorn flour later on, and you know, yeah, you know, all those sort of slightly what I call hardcore foraging jobs uh, <laughs> they are a little bit, little bit more uh, time demanding. But um actually, what's really interesting because we're in southwest Scotland, we we have a really comparable kind of climate to the very southwest of England, like Cornwall, mm. really, um, and 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 it's very maritime, very warming by the, the sea, kind of keeps us warm in the winter and cooler in the summer. So. I actually can, I reckon I can pick wild garlic or chanterelles on pretty much every day of the year in Galloway. You know, wild garlic starts in about January here uh, and runs through and you can still pick it in high summer in a really shady bit of woodland. And then around about the start of June is when the chanterelles start. And I've can picked them right into January sometimes, you know, or, the, or onto the winter chanterelles maybe. So those those two kind of iconic wild harvests actually span the whole year so there's not that much time off but i i do definitely go down a gear come the end of november and uh, yeah just sit and drink some of the things i've been making
2: <laughs> <laughs> well I've, I've had my personal experience with some of those drinks you've made and they are very mm-hmm. good
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. um apart from foraging do you have any favorite spots around galloway that you really love to visit or think other people should explore themselves when they come and visit scotland
3: uh yeah i mean it's it's, it's all amazing and i, I think exploring is about doing a bit of discovery yourself but i also recognize a few a few hot tips are really good as well <laughs> just a little word on uh, I, I teach people how to forage i don't tell people where to forage you know because that it kind of undermines that whole idea it starts to commodify the wild food if you tell people oh go here you'll get loads of that you know and people ask me and i've actually written a blog on my website explaining hopefully politely why i'm not going to tell people where my chanterelle spot is or because actually the best times you have with any wild food is when you um when you actually find it for yourself mm-hmm. i i think i remember telling you exactly the same thing on the, on our trip yeah
2: and it's it's similar with with traveling as well i i do agree yeah. with that i think sometimes it's nice to just head out without an aim you know on before we we met for the kayaking trip i spent a night on the isle of whithorn wow. and I didn't know any, anything about that area. I didn't research very much. I just ended up driving there, speaking to someone local and they recommended a place, so that's where I went. And you know, I just went from place to place by recommendations or just finding it, stopping and being like, oh, that's, that looks interesting. I'll, I'll see what's here. Yeah. So yeah, that definitely applies, but um, I am a travel person, you know, <laughs> yeah, I do love yeah, my yeah. tips. So even if it's just any, any areas you think are particularly worth visiting and then exploring independently. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, actually, I think you're right. I think the Machos, where you went, um, Mm. which is the big peninsula that runs down from Newton Stewart between Wigton Bay and Loose Bay, runs down to the Isle of Whithorn. I think that's a a wonderful area to get a flavour of coastal Galloway. You know, there's these lovely expanses by the sea where we have loads of succulent plants. Then you've got the rocky coast down by the Isle of Whithorn, and lovely harbour down there, and great for a bit of a van park up by the pub there as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, There's lovely walks there, so like the walk down to the um, St. Ninian's Cave. I don't know if you managed that when you were here.
2: I didn't. I heard about it, but I didn't manage to actually make the walk. But that's just a reason to come back, yeah. Well,
3: that's just got it all, because it's got the history of St. Ninian, who kind of brought Christianity to a certain extent to Scotland, along with St. Columba. And, uh, you know, he landed down there. And there's so this amazing cave with all historical connections. The walk is down this beautiful little hidden valley with amazing wild forest wild foods. And then you come out onto this incredible bay that has all the amazing coastal wild foods. There's a hill fort up here. So you're reminded that this has been lived at so many eras in the past and the kind of prime real estate. That's a really, really beautiful walk actually. And not a long one, but it has a little bit of everything, I think, that Galloway has to offer. So I'd highly recommend that St. Ninian's cave walk, but yeah, all around the back is just exploring. Garleston's rather lovely as well. That's on the other side of the the peninsula. And it's a lovely little kind of a, was a fishing village. Not a lot of fishing happens there anymore, but it's probably the most sheltered place in. Southwest Scotland. So I find figs growing there and wow. tomatoes growing on the beach and stuff like that, you know, yeah. it's kind of, it's like a little hot house because it doesn't get, it gets all the heat and warmth with none of the exposure. Amazing. Um, so yeah, there's lots of lovely stuff around there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then of course, if you get into the hills and uh, yeah, get, get away from maybe the plantations, it's great for mountain biking and all of that, but the, the Cree Valley woodland um, is incredible. Mm. Uh, you know, like we've got really ancient oak woodlands there. Um, actually temperate rainforests people don't think of rainforests as something exotic but these are sort of temperate uh, rainforests to, to a certain degree and um, yeah that, that's beautiful in the along the Cree Valley between um, uh, Glen Luce and uh, Newton Stewart lovely lovely along there yeah.
2: yeah and that's nice because I think that's also one of the course core areas of the biosphere isn't it the UNESCO biosphere
3: it is yes covers
2: yes. most of Galloway and southern Ayrshire
3: most of galloway and southern air so yeah it's kind of a interesting kind of nebulous concept but it's uh it's uh yeah a unesco designation uh, uh yeah so i'm a i'm a certified biosphere business um Fantastic. So, uh, which means you have to kind of tick a few boxes for being environmentally conscious and uh, looking after your staff well my, my staff is me so that's <laughs> and sometimes i'm quite hard on my staff and sometimes i let them away with murder <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, and if listeners are interested in learning more about the UNESCO biosphere, I have actually worked with them a few years ago. So I'll link to an article that I wrote about what a biosphere actually is and how you can experience that in Southern Ayrshire and Galloway as well. So you'll find the link in the in the show notes. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask if there's any resources that you can recommend to anyone who wants to get started with foraging that would be useful for people to start.
3: Yeah, there's there's lots out there. But, I mean, I think it's quite good to get a book, a good book. But of course, if you're travelling, that's it's quite hard to get the right book for your for your particular region. Uh, although, if you're really into plants and you're visiting Scotland and you have, if, if you like a really beautiful book, the uh, Flora Celtica is the most magical encyclopedia of people and plants in Scotland. And it's like it's like deep ethnobotany, but very real as well. You know, they go for everything from you know the modern trade in mushrooms to historic uses of seaweed and through all the plants and seaweeds and things like that. And uh, so flora Celtica would be my, you know, if you come to Scotland and you're a plant person, mm-hmm. then and you want to take something magical away, or, or, or buy it but be just as you arrive, even better, or buy it a week before you come, you know, uh, and just look through that. That's like amazing for connecting you with the stories of plants and how they interweave with people. Uh, but not really a pocket field guide or anything like that yeah so I think we'll we'll park the books but I would say uh, I mean I've tried to make my website Galloway Wild Foods as useful as possible to like novice foragers and more experienced foragers and I have a re- resource section on there that has some it's a bit out of date probably I should do more but little brief reviews of foraging guidebooks and tips on how to kind of find the right guidebook for you because of course foraging isn't one thing some people are really only f- focused on plants and they're a bit too scared of mushrooms to start down that road just yet. So, you know, you need to get the right combination of identification guides, but also that sort of inspiration that, that comes. So that that there will be some tips on, on on my website site, Galloway Wild Foods around that in the resources section. But I suppose if you're just coming to an area, then then the internet is just amazing for, for, for connecting with all of that. So um, yeah, lots of great foragers out there. Um, in terms of Scotland, my friend Monica Wild has a website, I think you'll find her on Instagram as at Monica Wild. She does lots of stuff and she comes from a more of a kind of herbalist perspective. Uh, She does lots of medicinal stuff as well, but also very gourmet. And she's just did a whole year eating nothing but wild food and has uh, written a book uh, that she's coming out soon. So that'll be a good read when it comes out. So check check out Monica. Lots more kind of widely dispersed sort of foraging uh, folk. If you go to the, we've set up this thing called the Association of Foragers, which is wherever you visit in the UK or Scotland, we have a directory on there. and everyone on the directory either teaches about foraging, maybe not full time like me, but some part- time, some a little bit more, some a little bit less, but you know in some way kind of earn some of their living out of teaching about foraging or supplying wild foods or using them in their businesses. And there's a directory on there you can put in a region and it will bring you up with the forager. And everyone on there is uh, is, is is competent and uh, knowledgeable and uh, very friendly. And what you find that uh, foresters are always uh, kind of excited to tell you about their stuff. You know what I mean? And like what's there and things like that. As long as you don't ask them where, that's it, that's <laughs> your, the way you alienate. You know, they'll tell you endlessly about how to go and find them and how amazing these things are and what to look for. But as soon as you say, "And oh, where can I go and pick that?", they'll they'll clam up. Yes. <laughs> it's like go find it yourself. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. um so go on the associated Foragers website is a good start, wherever you are in the UK, to be honest. But uh, even in Scotland, it's kind of broken down a little bit regionally as well. So we've got folk up in the in the northwest um that, that are up there. So yeah, lots of lots of good uh, good stuff. I've also got a long list of um social media accounts on my website. Maybe you could put a link into that particular page, and that's all my kind of favorite foragers, they're not all Scotland-based. So that's why I'm not regurgitating their names just now because a lot of them are based down south. But of course, the UK is such a small country, really. It's not like foraging in North America, where you need to have actually a very specific regional yeah. foraging guide. Uh and you know, what you're finding in the 95% of what you find in the south of England will you find in, in in the north of Scotland within if that habitat is still there. So if you're on a rocky bit of coast there. Down there, then you probably find very similar things on a rocky bit of coast here. And then with, with a few little things that add in bragging rights, you know, so they don't get sweet Sicily down there. So we get to kind of like show off about that up here, but we <laughs> don't get much Alexander's uh, down there. So yeah, there's a little bit of that goes on too. But uh yeah, most mostly it's uh, that knowledge is transferable. So any good uh, UK um foraging uh, guides, like Robin Harford has eat weeds. That's a really kind of clear, a simple uh, kind of guide to lots of different plants. Uh, yeah, lo- lo- lots of nice things, but yeah, yeah.
2: We'll link to some of these in the in the full show notes on the website as well. So we, we have all that in one place. And then finally, what is a good way for people to get in touch with you or keep up with what you're doing, follow you on your foraging adventures, and uh, maybe join you for uh, a foraging walk or a workshop as well? Like Where, where can they find you?
3: Yeah, they can connect with me um, through my. Uh, well, I have a website, Galloway Wild Foods. Yeah, that that is a kind of large foraging guide. Uh, there's a, there's hundreds of plants and seaweeds, and I've just have a whole page on each one with lots of different photos, saying you know how to idea how to how to connect with it, how to sustainably and thoughtfully uh, harvest it, and what to do with it. So you know, lo- lots of. Um, free information on there and there's a comment section. But if you want to kind of follow what I'm up to day day to day, I put on, and I think social media is good for sort of prompting people who are maybe earlier on in their foraging journey, like, oh, look, they're picking such and such. Oh, right. Um, And you might know that plant, but you need to be reminded because you've got a busy city life or something like that, you know? So uh, uh, yeah, social media is good for that. So I I am at Mark Wildfood on Instagram and also on Twitter uh, as at at Mark Wildfoods and on uh, Facebook, I'm Galloway Wild Foods. For some reason, it's not all very joined up, but uh, <laughs> and most of the most of the posts just spread through the whole the whole lot. So you only need to you only need to follow me on one of those, and uh, yeah. So and I, I suppose it's like I have all my events, upcoming events, more added all the time, listed on my events calendar on my website, and there's a map so you can find out where whereabouts in the UK they are. They do tend to get booked up quite a long way ahead, uh, so uh, I have waiting lists, and because they get booked up quite a long way ahead. It means i quite often get a few cancellations in the week before so it is worth joining the waiting list for them also helps me gauge you know maybe i should put on more of these in the future mm. if i have a long waiting list but a really nice way and i think if people are visiting scotland probably and want to kind of you know connect with me and uh, and, and do some foraging and, and do some learning is the private booking is is a really good way to do that so you know, I could take out a family group. I had a lovely family from Canada. Oh, it was amazing. And they wanted to make their own gin, not in a commercial way, but just like, yeah, they really loved uh, one of the Scottish gins. And they were, they're really excited by that. And I'd worked with that, that gin brand over on Isla. So they connected and they, I took them out around me and we looked at all the plants and how you might use them in a gin. And they talked about, because they lived in the Canadian Shield. So it was like, so we had to try and work out which ones were relevant to them. And it was great. And they're going to make it just, So we had a lovely afternoon and, uh, you know, tippled on a few things. And uh, so it's a lovely day. out. And I, I suppose that's the best way for people who are on holiday to do it. Because it's quite hard to find my scheduled events meeting up with exactly where you are or mm. where you plan to be. Uh, some people starting to come just to Forage, which is quite, quite nice too.
2: Amazing. Yeah. yeah brilliant well thank you so much for taking the time mark we'll pop all those links in the show notes so people can find you and follow you and engage with you and learn from you most importantly i think i've learned a lot on the foraging trip and also in today's conversation i had a really good time so thank you so much for joining
3: thank you very much for having me i i I love what you do and it was great to go on that paddling trip with you and uh you know share some wild cocktails a few too many (laughs) and uh yeah and i'll see you around i'm sure yeah thank you
2: enjoyed my conversation with Mark Williams. You can find out more about his work and upcoming workshops and events at GallowayWildFoods.com and connect with him on social media. You'll find all these links in the show notes. That is it for today. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favour, share it with a friend who might enjoy it, post about it on social media, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. These are all great ways for you to support our work at absolutely no cost to you. Wild for Scotland is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts of The Beaten Path. The show is written and hosted by me, Kathy Kamleitner. Thanks to Fran Turowskis, who's the co-producer and editor, and thus the sound design, and to Michelle Payne, who helps with transcripts and social media. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, And all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel to a different place in Scotland.